Hello, and welcome to RD and the Inbetweens. I'm your host, Kelly Priest, and every fortnight I talk to a different guest about researchers, development, and everything in between. Hello, and welcome to the latest episode of RD and the Inbetweens. I'm your host, Kelly Preece, and I'm bringing you a special episode for Neurodiversity Celebration Week. So I'm going to be talking to two of our neurodiverse graduates about their experience of doing a PhD. So for those that don't know, neurodiversity is a way that we talk about variations or differences in the human brain. They may be regarding sociability, learning, attention or mood. And we characterise those as differences rather than pathologies. So rather than as something that's wrong with someone, it's just a way that they're different. Specifically, our guests today are autistic. So autism is a form of neurodiversity, um, but in and of itself refers to a very broad range of conditions which can be characterised by challenges with social skills, repetitive behaviours, speech and non-verbal communication, but not necessarily all of or just exclusive to these things. This episode is part of a new series where we're going to talk to researchers about their experiences of doing research um, with particular challenges such as neurodiversity and hopefully produce some guidance for supervisors, for PIs, for research leaders about how to best support um, our researchers who have unique challenges within the research environment. Yeah, my name is Jane and uh, I'm originally from Glasgow and I came to Exeter to do my PhD in human geography. Um, I studied ecotowns and whether or not living there is likelier to make you do green behaviours or not. Um, I was late diagnosed with autism at 29 um, and I'm also going to speak a little bit about the kind of ADHD neurodiversity perspective here as well because my husband also uh, who has ADHD got his PhD a few years ago so we had two neurodiverse doctors in this house. I love that phrase, two neurodiverse doctors. <laughs> um, it sounds like it should be a TV show. Um, Edward, do you want to go next? Yeah, of course. So my name's Edward Mills. Uh, I am a lecturer in medieval studies now at Exeter, but I completed my PhD back in 2021, I think it was. Yes, 2021. Um, and I... I'm here representing the autism side of things specifically. Uh, I was also late diagnosed, not quite as late as Jane at I think 23. Um, that poses its own challenges, but I'd never really thought about how autism interacted with study until a certain point during my PhD, which I'm sure we'll discuss in, in more detail later. Yeah, thank you both. And I think that that's what's um, particularly interesting about this conversation, actually, is, is not just thinking about neurodiversity in general, in terms of the PhD process, but also, you know, late diagnosis of, of neurodiversity and how that, particularly as you're kind of embarking on a research degree, how that impacts your approach and your support and your position as a student whilst you're grappling with the diagnosis. Were you both diagnosed before you started your research degrees? No, I wasn't no. myself. I uh, 
was only diagnosed uh, within the first few months of my PhD, which was wow. news that I didn't expect. And it wasn't terribly helpful, to be honest. Yeah, so can you say something about that, about what, what, what do you mean by it wasn't terribly helpful? So I suppose in the long run, you could say it was helpful in the sense that it's better to know if you're having, if you're struggling, if you're having some difficulties communicating, if you're having some trouble with some aspects of study and being on campus, it's better to know than not to know. I completely believe in that. So I completely believe in having the, the right information to understand your own condition. Um, on the other hand, um, you don't necessarily want to hear just as you start one of the most difficult kind of academic challenges of your life that you're also going to have to do it slightly with you know an added difficulty level there of having a condition you hadn't anticipated on having to manage so there's swings and roundabouts to knowing at that point absolutely what about you edward different circumstances similar outcome i think so yeah. i was diagnosed a while before i started my research degree i was diagnosed the day before my graduation from my undergraduate degree um but i didn't really do anything about it so to speak until uh, about six months into my my PhD so the experience of kind of coming to terms with what a diagnosis of um, in my case Asperger's meant wasn't something that I really had to tackle until it got to a point where I needed to do something about it. Yeah so there's there's the dual challenges of you know the challenges of doing a research degree anyway which let's face it it's not the easiest of undertakings mm -hmm. um, but then also, you know, coming, getting to grips with the diagnosis and what it means and also, I guess, what supports available to you. And I'd be quite interested to know, um, you know, quite honestly about the, did you access any supports from the university um, as somebody who is neurodivergent or did you, um, did you feel kind of comfortable to continue your studies kind of without support mechanisms or you know or were you know how were the support mechanisms in place were they beneficial or not I guess is the question. yeah yeah I see what you mean there yeah um I suppose that sometimes disability accommodations can be a little bit one size fits all there can be a little bit of nuance lost between figuring out that different conditions are really going to require different things a lot of it is tailored towards undergrads. That's, that's something I found in general from speaking to other neurodiverse PGRs. Um, they're not necessarily completely sure what to do with some of the situations that arise during the PhD. It's more about having extra exam time um, and things that, are the more, things that would come up more in an undergrad course. Um, that's not to say that there was nothing helpful on offer. I don't want to come down hard on that at all. Um, but some of it wasn't as tailored towards actually autism as opposed to just, oh, well, there is a general disability here. Therefore, you find academic life generally difficult. Therefore, have extra time on an exam. <laughs> and yeah, and like you say, it's, it's, there's the, so there's the issue there of the kind of generic support for all disabilities and whether, you, you know, without getting into a debate of whether you consider neurodivergence to be a disability um but also like you say it's it's aimed towards undergraduates so it's more time in an exam which just does it just doesn't apply yeah in the in the research degree environment yeah and i mean in my case i i found it difficult sometimes to tell the difference between struggling with something 
because of because of uh, the condition, because of autism, or just am I struggling with something? Because it's something that any PhD would struggle with, and the people around me as well. Like, how do we attribute that? If if there is a difficulty, or if there's something I'm finding tricky, uh, how do we how do we kind of pass out if it really is something that I'm just finding difficult because of who I am, or is it genuinely like would anyone find this a tough situation? Mm. Yeah, and like, and like I said at the beginning, you know, doing a research degree is is tough. Mm -hmm. What what have you got to say on that, Edward, in terms of your experience? So I think it's again not altogether dissimilar. Certainly, the the way in which Exeter uh, and a lot of institutions address um, the challenges that something like an autism or ADHD diagnosis might pose for students is some variant of something called an individual learning plan. That wasn't really applicable. It's through the, the ILP at Exeter where you get things like adjustments for exam time. Um, but in my case, and if I, if I could give one piece of advice to the neurodiverse PGRs, it would be this. Um, I was able to make use of the supervision agreement, which is something that is specific to PGR. So in my case, I actually had the almost a supervision contract, if that makes sense, that every new PGR signs up to individually with their supervisors at the start of the PhD. I mentioned it there and, and highlighted autism from the start in that context. There wasn't really anything that an ILP tailored towards an undergraduate would necessarily achieve. So I didn't want to put that weight on um, accessibility the team in extra who manage that um so i found that going through the what is available to pgr specifically was quite a helpful approach to take so i guess that leads to two questions um and we'll, we'll do with sort of stick with the support theme to start with one of which is so you know you said you know you you edward you raised your um diagnosis within supervision agreement that was yeah. is a PG, P, pgr related process and you've both reflected on kind of the individual learning plan model as it at, that it's aimed at undergraduates i guess my question then is what what support could have been available if that process were less aimed at undergraduates and it was it was more aware of the PGR experience, is there support that you think the university could have given you that it didn't? I think it's important to say that the support the university offers for neurodiverse um, students isn't just an ILP. No, and no, There no. were other uh, areas of the university support for autistic students, in my case, that I was able to access, which I, I benefited enormously from. So, um, for example, there is uh, the not at all uh, oxymoronic autism social group, <laughs> which I attended on a few occasions that tends to be quite undergraduate heavy but it's always nice to meet people whose brains work in a similar way to yours regardless of age um, the university does also offer autism mentoring which you can tailor and you can use and this is something a lot of universities do you can tailor and you can use in any way you see fit so in my case it was not about um, some of the concerns that undergraduates might have mm. uh, it wasn't about sort of principles of very basic time management that you might be coming to for the first time if you're an undergraduate it was sort of more more complex ideas than that and my mentor was still able to to help out with that enormously yeah so for me a lot of it was 
simply awareness raising I found helpful. Um, some accommodations are more to me of a safety net than something that is frequently needed. I found that uh, having a tailored kind of ILP type document of, of requirements, especially for my Viva, it was very good to have as a safety net. It was very good to know that they had been aware that if my eye contact wasn't exactly as another student's might have been, it's not because I'm being shifty or suspicious or because I'm hiding something, you know? It's just a, a natural feature of autism that you don't always make eye contact in quite the same way. And simply having that level of awareness and also having the option, um, other things that were in it were things like being able to take breaks when I needed, or if I appeared to be getting overwhelmed, if there was any flapping and stimming going on, it's a sign that your autistic student is starting to get a bit agitated, time to call a break and start again. Um, it had things like that in it. Um, in the end, none of that was necessary. The Viva went really well, no need for taking any breaks. I felt completely in control and enjoyed the whole thing. But the fact that it was there as a safety net was helpful. So sometimes even just knowing that your supervisors and the people who work with you are aware if you should become overwhelmed, if you should start to get into difficulties, I think it makes all the difference. Um, yeah, I really, that really resonates with me. The, the issue of awareness and also having, like you say, having those things in place if they are needed, because they are not necessarily going to be needed. We're not dealing with, with you know, um, we're not dealing with fixed experiences, are no, we? No, that's a yeah. really good point. Yeah. Also, yeah. from the from the kind of ADHD perspective as well, it's it's looking back in retrospect at things I think would have made the whole PhD experience easier for those with attention deficit disorder. I mean, things like customized workplaces, because the science indicates that people with ADHD tend to learn better when they're a little bit in motion. So if they have the ability to pace up and down as they're studying, um, you know, that's why situations like hot desking in a quiet room where there's lots of people all together and everyone needs to be very quiet and considerate, you know, if you can give the ADHD students a little bit of space on their own for some pacing and talking to themselves and waving their hands at a whiteboard, you know, <laughs> this is how we do it in our household. Maybe it's a little kooky, but it works, you know, and that's something that's specific to ADHD. Um, also things like supervisors being able to stay quite on the ball, stay quite um, strict with deadlines. Because even though you would assume that um, a lot of people that I've talked to who are managing ADHD at university say that if the supervisor gives them too kind of vague a deadline and says, oh, get it in whenever, I don't really mind, I trust you. They say, well, you know, how am I going to keep my concentration up? I've got to keep my motivation high. I've got to have people, you know, that I can sign in with and check in with and talk to regularly. Um, so yeah, it's surprising that what, what does work for one condition, um, it's surprising how much it, it really doesn't work for another sometimes. <laughs> yeah, and I, so there's, there's a couple of things in there which, I, which are really important. One is, is like you say, it's the, it's different people require different structures mm -hmm. and support. You both mentioned it, so I wanted to bring up um, supervision and supervisors and specifically, you know, where you're both saying, you know, awareness is key. Um, what kind of 
What kind of support did you have in place from your supervisors? How did you approach talking to them about the different support that you might need or the different structures you might need? And, you know, how willing were they to accommodate, I guess, is the, the word that I'm looking for. So should I go first here? Yeah, yeah, go for it, Edward. So obviously I've given everyone supervisor envy on this podcast before. Mm-hmm. Um, my supervisor, Tom Hinton, was wonderful about the whole thing. I think what I actually put on the supervision agreement, because it's very much a document that, at least at Exeter, that you draft with your supervisor, was that Edward might misread social cues or possibly be a little too blunt when he didn't mean to be um you know very standard almost stereotypical things really but Mm -hmm. what tended to find was that sort of making and raising some awareness of that at the start was quite helpful in that it set a kind of a baseline as we said awareness and expectation which then we probably both found ourselves tailoring without really thinking about it as our relationship evolved yeah so it's not a particularly complex point to develop from what was being said a moment ago, but it's the idea of being aware of being aware rather of your supervisee uh, and the supervisee being aware of what what they can do to help the supervisor um, work effectively with them as well. Um, that can make a big difference from the outset. Here. Um, what about you, Jane? What was your experience? It was a learning curve for both of us. Um, because I was as much in the dark, really, as they were. I'd had no understanding or training. I didn't even really know what Asperger's syndrome was, apart from a few stereotypes that you see on TV, and we all know those can be wildly inaccurate. Um, So we were all kind of learning together, and I think the whole process evolved over time. I did have to change supervisors, um, and so that was part of the evolving. That was part of... um, the way that my degree changed over time. That was part of my degree journey. Um, And sometimes it was, sometimes communication differences and things were, they were quite nuanced. They were to do with the sort of conventions of academia. So for example, situations where (laughs) it's the academic convention to write in the margins, uh, to give helpful feedback with, I would have written this paragraph using X source. I would have emphasized Y point differently. There's a little missing piece of the puzzle in the autistic mind sometimes where the cognitive jump as to why he's writing that uh, doesn't, it's not immediately obvious to us. I have come to understand over time, logicking it out that, you know, he means you might like to try <laughs> writing this paragraph using X source and you might like to emphasize Y point differently. My initial reaction is to look at it and go, well, of course you are, you're a different human being. You'd have written a different thing to me because we're different. <laughs> Um, there's these little misunderstandings that you just have to kind of uh, you know the first few times logic out kind of longhand and think right no obviously it must mean that logically (laughs) Um, and then you you come to an understanding and it becomes more commonplace more kind of routine yeah I had a few a few moments like that I don't I don't think my supervisor uh, typically wrote I would have written in this way but there certainly were versions of that along the lines of me kind of having to as you said, logic out something, using the logical part of your brain where somebody who is neurotypical might do that quote unquote instinctively. So that's certainly an experience I can relate to as well. Mm-hmm. 
So if I was struggling with a piece of feedback, struggling to understand exactly what the change I should make really was, that could be difficult at times because my supervisor would then think, well, this person is struggling because I'm being too harsh. I need to moderate my tone more. I need to make the feedback more oblique and indirect because otherwise it'll be too blunt. And of course, this is this is the opposite of, of what would have really worked for the situation because the more vague and oblique and indirect it becomes, the less easy to understand the actual objection is. And so we all end up kind of missing each other in, in a way that well, it's completely accidental and no one intends. Um, but that, that was the kind of miscommunication error that we had to kind of overcome in the course of the degree. Yeah, did you find yourself almost having a meta dialogue about that sort of form of communication and feedback and all that sort of stuff to kind of tease out what what was was and wasn't working for both of you I guess I absolutely did with my supervisor I think we did actually Tom and I did discuss that on a few occasions and he did he did very helpfully clarify that for me it, it was that it wasn't feedback on me it was feedback on how what I on what I'd written and how I could mm. make it better because I have a tendency to take feedback very personally I encountered some resistance to that. Um, obviously, I'm not here on this podcast to single anybody out at all. It's not about okay. that. Just speaking honestly about it, yes, there was some resistance from some quarters. Um, there was a sense that I was asking for something very unreasonable and that when I confessed I was having some trouble communicating, there was a general meeting held to sort of say, well, this is just the requirements of the degree. We can't accommodate. It's got to yeah. be this way. So that was a little tough at first. Um, I can't pretend other ways about that part. But, you know, ultimately, in the long run, it all kind of evolved and it did work in the long run. We all came to a better understanding of communication. Yeah, and I think that there's two things that are really important in there. One is is the importance of communication um, within, within this and that kind of that meta dialogue and meta communication and actually openness because it sounds like you can only unpick because we're not talking about something as simple here as to go back to that classic example, more time in an exam. We're mm -hmm. talking about something much more subtle and much more nuanced. Yeah. And so yeah. It, it sounds like to me what you're saying is that ne that needs unpicking. Yeah, yeah. Or that supervisory relationship to be able to work properly. Well, um, it's like coming back to the awareness thing, even just yeah. knowing that that is on the table, that the kind of meta unpicking option is on the table if you wanted to have a conversation about you know how can we talk about how we're communicating here is this working for you even just knowing that you could have that conversation is is helpful I think and I think setting that up from the outset is a very a very if, if you're able to do that it's a very positive thing to do certainly with my supervision agreement I was quite fortunate mm -hmm. to, be able to have that in place from the outset and I think you know and I this is something that I harp on about quite a lot about quote unquote adjustments um is that you know that i would say is just good practice in any supervisory mm. relationship um to be to having those conversations about how you communicate and what works and what doesn't because i it makes the learning experience much more effective um well, no, the other thing that I wanted to raise was that I think that, Jane, you've hit on something really crucial as well for me, which is that we have systems and processes and ways of doing, which aren't like 
they're not regulations you know they're not things that we have to do they're more kind of cultural norms really yeah they're norms of the way that we do things and sometimes people find it really difficult to move outside of that and go well that no but that's the way that we do it Mm -hmm. as if the, the fact that the way that we do that that's the way that we do it means it's the right way and the only way which we're just not in a realm of of the right way and the only way in so much of this work um and I think that that's a really important recognition as well is that it's it's a challenge to the norms of the system yeah and the funny thing being changed in the undergraduate realm um I'm thinking here about undergraduate assessment is often being mm. has been radically changed in recent years in response to in response to COVID so change change is possible and change change does happen absolutely but there's a I think there is still a sense that the the PhD as a as a higher degree is still being held to a lot of very uh traditional norms with a certain a certain uh set of expectations to be placed upon it yeah excuse my strange accent there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah and I think that that's really it's really important to recognize um and because they're challenges to the system that are crucial because it's challenging you know well why why does it have to work that way yeah why does it have to be assessed that way why do we have to communicate that way you know what why is it that that's the way that we do things and, and what why can't we do things differently and there might be a valid answer to that question there it may. might be that the viva is an important the way that we typically do a viva is an important yes. step in making sure that we are able to prove authorship of the thesis and defend yeah. our, yeah. our in, and, in speech. And I but know, equally, there are changes that can be made. Yeah, and I know that, for instance, some work that we've done at Exeter on, on um, adjustment survivors, you know, is is been quite challenging because one of the things that often gets suggested by accessibility is, well, can you have the questions in advance? And you go, well it's it's not a case of the questions are set in advance because yeah. it's a conversation and a dialogue. so you can't you might be able to provide some of that but you you can't provide all of it it's not the nature of of what the examination is but there might be other accommodations that you could make yeah. that would provide the same level of support for instance i know i've had um we've had students for instance who who have stutters who have been who have been provided with some of the questions in advance so that they're able to write out a response so that if they are struggling to communicate within the viva that they have a response but they only get that with you know within a certain time period of in advance and all this sort of stuff so there were there were rules around it but it's not that the com- the accommodations can't be made it's just that they've got to i guess honor the nature of the examination whilst also not kind of I realise I'm contradicting myself slightly because whilst also not kind of being... No, this, I don't think you're contradicting yourself. I, I understand what you're saying there. Yeah, yeah, it's, yeah. it's a no, um, reasonable adjustment, I think, that you're getting yeah. there. Which is that really, I mean, that really resonates with me because yeah. uh, I had an added complication on top of the autism. I also um, was diagnosed with obsessive compulsive disorder. Um, it was actually so severe that I was hospitalised within the first few weeks of my PhD with it because it was oh, wow. it was quite extreme. Um, so it has been very bad at certain points, and I know that that has added a layer of complication and difficulty, um, which I mean is something that you can you can kind of anticipate as part of disability services because it is normal for some conditions to cluster together. 
we all know statistically that it's much more common for people on the autism spectrum to have a diagnosis of OCD. So the fact that some of these disorders come in clusters or come together, um, you know, it's not a surprising thing, but it is a whole other layer of complications to manage. And I certainly was aware of the humorous irony of a student uh, trying to do a geography degree with uh, periodic agoraphobia. So <laughs> attempting to be on location and studying a particular location was having some difficulty leaving the house due to intrusive thoughts. <laughs> because I hear that. disorder can catch you that way sometimes when it's when it's <laughs> I hear that. And I raise you autism in a modern foreign languages degree. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> um, and so I yeah, think that, that wasn't helpful to have. Um, right. It ended up with a situation of you know, I'm gonna, I, I made it out obviously to my research location as often as I possibly could, but there were periods where the symptoms were very bad and it was difficult to get to conduct an interview, for example, face to face. And at that point, um, luckily, well, I say luckily uh, in terms of a global pandemic, wasn't lucky as such, but um, <laughs> you know, um, everyone was starting to move towards this more Zoom model of doing things. Everyone was understanding that there was a kind of online correlate way of doing yes. things. And even though, I acknowledged at the time, I understand that it's not as, not necessarily as effective as being face to face. My question at the time to the university authorities was, can it be effective enough for me to make progress yes. in my degree? Even if we do a kind of online way that is not as superior, it's not, not necessarily as good as face to face, is it still 90% as good? Can we still make it as good as possible? Can it still be an accommodation that just about still works? And in the end, I did it half and half. I did some interviews face to face and I did some online. And because of the COVID situation, that was becoming not unusual at that point. So yeah. and I think, and and I think it, it can work in some circumstances. Yeah, and I think that that in some ways is, you know, not not to in any way make light of a global pandemic. But that is some of the advances that COVID has given us is those sorts of things where we've gone, well, no, it's in, it's inferior. It's not the same. It's not as good. We're not mm -hmm. going to try it or accommodate it because we were all forced into an environment where we had to actually like you say we've realized actually you know what it's 90 percent as good and yeah. actually that's still valid and still useful and still you know helps us to create knowledge and and, and do those things it's, it still has worth just yeah. because it's not the same doesn't mean it's not it's not worthwhile. I, think I would challenge it. anyone looking at the side by side transcripts of the interviews done face to face and the interviews mm. that I did um, online. I would really challenge anyone to, to see much of a difference in those. I think we uh, yeah. use a tiny bit of the kind of nuance of communication, facial expressions, body language. However, for an autistic student, I did kind of point out in my degree when I reflected on how it had gone and said, maybe for autistic students, that's not as big a loss, <laughs> given that we might not have been looking at that very well anyway. So yeah, 90% um, as good, you know? So the, I guess my next question is about what were the real challenges that you experienced throughout the process of doing a research degree as someone who is neurodivergent? Are there particular pinch points in the process, um, like the Viva, or was it just like, you know, you said, Jane, when, you know, these are in some ways fluctuating kind of symptoms and fluctuating yeah. impact on your life. And so if you're like, you know, you said about when your OCD was particularly bad, that, you know, that that then causes a knock-on effect and challenges on your studies. I just wondered kind of 
yeah, I guess for you, in your experience, what the big challenges were. Yeah, so it's, for, for the, the kind of OCD aspect of it certainly made concentration a little harder. Um, you know, I was still able to produce a good result. And like you say, sometimes you get the good result by atypical means. Um, I think it slowed me down a little. I think that it was hard, harder to concentrate with intrusive thoughts causing a problem. Um, but you know, you, you still get there in the end, you find ways of working around it, uh, even if it goes a little bit slower than the conventional timetable, uh, you can still get there. Um, yeah, that, that for me was challenging. That was, that was hard to bear sometimes because I didn't want to be dealing with it. You know, nobody else wanted me to be dealing with it either. <laughs> it was just, whereas I think, so the, the, the analogy that's often used for uh, having a neurodivergent condition uh, is that you're running on a slightly different operating system than the rest of the world. So most of the world is running on Microsoft and you're kind of running on Linux. You might still, you might use slightly different means to achieve the same tasks. OCD is more like a virus. OCD is more like a computer virus. It's not like an operating system at all. Yeah, it's works. like something that stops the functioning of the system. So whereas autism is something that can be worked with and academia can be really autism friendly, the OCD wasn't that's as much. That's a really, really interesting point, actually, mm. um, and not an not an angle that I've, I've I've thought about before. But certainly, the from an autism perspective, your um, your brain running on a different OS is a very powerful model to take, and it's it's probably worth saying that you you mentioned some of the challenges, and I think I can echo the challenges coming up at certain points and being triggered by things other than necessarily purely PhD related things. So for example, I really struggled um, living in a shared house um, mm -hmm. in my first few months of my PhD, which is actually what kicked me into getting some autism support in the first place. Um, but you mentioned that uh, academia can also be very autism friendly. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. And you're right in that if, if autistic people can be running Linux when everyone else is running Windows, that means that you can do a lot of things much more efficiently than, uh, than, than other people can, except then you're sometimes asked to do something that's really easy to do in Windows and you, you have to go, oh no, hang on, I've got to open up the terminal here and just make <laughs> yeah, a flood. Yeah, how far does this analogy extend? It's brilliant, isn't it? <laughs> oh, 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 it goes all the way. As a non-Linux user, I'm already confused. Well, I'm a boozy. <laughs> So uh, that, and that, I find that analogy really helpful. Like, I think that it really clarifies and, and the way the, the extent to which you've taken it, Edward really helps kind of understand what the challenges are. And like you say, how some things might be more efficient or slightly easier, but then things that seem might be simple, as you said, simple in Windows, and then actually more complicated in Linux. So, because we're continuing with this analogy. Um, I wondered what, based on the kind of the challenges and particularly what you seem to be saying is, is kind of, it's, it's, it's less about the process of doing the research degree and more about kind of basically how life intersects with it. You know, mm -hmm. life yeah. happens and, 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 you know, in, in whatever form and that, creates you know challenges what advice would you have for supervisors in supporting neurodivergent students 
with these challenges? Shall I go first on this one? Mm -hmm. Yeah, go for it. I think the main piece of advice I'd give supervisors would be empathy. This sounds like mm -hmm. a really obvious point to make, but being willing and able to listen um, from the start can make a huge difference, both in making the supervisee feel comfortable and ultimately in you as a supervisor, um, making what's probably going to be a significant investment of, of your time over the next sort of three, three and a half, four years or longer, um, work better and work more productively. So being willing from the outset to listen and to engage in, in the what we've called the meta dialogue mm. earlier um, can make a huge difference, I think, from, from the outset. So anything you wanted to add to that, Jane? Oh, right, yes. Um, I think it comes back to a lot of what we were saying earlier about the willingness to communicate. Um, I think what you made was some great points there, Edward. I think empathy is certainly something that would be helpful. And the willingness to communicate and the willingness to talk, like you were saying, on that meta level as well, um, to communicate about communicating, to ask how's it going, to actually ask what kind of ways of getting an idea together would be the most helpful. And if the current ones that we're using are working, you know, so even, even just being able to talk on that meta level is also useful. But I, I found that the, um, the raising awareness and simply laying out kind of expectations or laying out an understanding of what autism was at the beginning of things, it does change the whole dynamic. It does change the whole tone. If you go into it knowing that that's something that is going to be in the room with you, that you have to manage, um, you know, it no longer surprises people. People understand that if your eye contact, for example, is a little bit off to the left, you know, it's not a sign that something is wrong or that someone is uncomfortable. It's just what's normal for that student. Um, it really does make a huge difference. As we sort of bring ourselves to a close, I wondered actually if you, we could flip that round from advice to supervisors, what advice would you have for either current neurodivergent PGRs or people who are neurodivergent who are considering doing a research degree? Have you got any kind of things that you wish you knew or kind of advice that you wish you'd been given at that point in time? Yeah, well, I think when it comes to this kind of self-knowledge, like your knowledge is power. The more you can articulate what's going on in your head, the more you can communicate. I know, ironically, this is about autism, but <laughs> the more that you can communicate your needs and the way that you operate and what kind of things that you need from others, you know, that's very helpful. Read up on your condition. Uh, ask others or attend the, the very helpful uh, support group that they have here at Exeter. Um, you know, that's very useful stuff. You connect with other people who have the same condition that you have and see what kind of commonalities you've got. And then, you know, that's a helpful springboard to work from because the more you know about yourself and your needs, the more you can advocate and the more you can be precise and clear about what it is you're gonna, gonna need during the course of your degree. I actually found a role for myself within you know, the social group, which was sort of almost somewhere between a facilitator and a member, I suppose. I mean, I might be misreading that somewhat, but I ended up I ended up running a kind of an informal autism lending library whereby all the books I acquired <laughs> over the previous years, I just lent them out to autistic undergrads. Um, you did but, too. I took home a couple from you once. 
I'm pretty sure. I think I did, yeah. Did I get them back? (laughs) Oh, now that's a challenging question. No, I'm quite sure I did. I'm pretty sure. I'm I'm quite quite conscientious about that. I'm sure I did, don't worry. And if not, I've got the spreadsheet. But the the, the advice I would give to, to students, incoming PGRs, is not just know as much about yourself as possible, but but certainly I'd echo a lot of what of what Jane says about going to support groups, even if you don't think at the start that you necessarily need them. Mm. It was a, a, a the, the university made it very easy, but it was inherently an unpleasant experience having to go uh, in my second term in Exeter, crawling as it felt to well-being, saying, hi, I'm a 25 year old researcher who sits somewhere awkwardly between staff and a student um you know but i'm struggling with something that feels like all the undergrads just get help um as in that all the undergrads get full stop help exclamation mark sorry um what yeah what i would say is get the get the support mechanisms set up as soon as possible uh, it's 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 something I say to undergraduate students actually as a personal tutor now is if you know that you might benefit from support put the steps to get it in place underway put put the steps underway now <laughs> uh, rather than waiting for a crisis because you will make your life so much easier if you are comfortable and if you are aware of what might happen before it does yeah because and uh, neurodivergent conditions will make your PhD experience different and the earlier that you can acknowledge that and lean into both how that can make your experience good and also how it can create problems that you'll need to deal with the better. Yeah yeah I mean I would add even things like communicating on academic Twitter can be helpful there is a little group of neurodiverse PhDs on there we share tips, we share information. Um, like you say, even if you don't think you're going to need a kind of support group scenario, even if you don't think that you've got a particular interest in socialising with your own people, um, <laughs> even if you, you know, even if you don't think that's of particular interest to you, you'd rather cluster around an interest or about something else. There were light bulb moments at the autism uh, sort of social group at Exeter that I had. Uh, I think we were out on a social trip out to the bowling or something. We were all walking down the road together and I looked around and was like, hang on a minute, we've all got the same walk. How does this happen? (laughs) There were these moments of like, we've all got these particular commonalities to our, you know, we all do this thing the same way. We all think about this thing the same way. And there were little light bulb moments where I had realizations about myself and about the way I worked that I found helpful. Oh, for me, it was trying to work out how many, how much of a surface area of Devon you could cover if you took all of the baked beans that had ever been made. We did the maths on it. Oh, classic. Yeah, it would take about 140 years, we think, to, no, 400 years to cover Devon in baked beans. I am afraid I'm going to have to draw us to an end. Um, but thank you both so much for your time and your candor and um, just for sharing your experience, because I think like, you know, you're both saying a- about awareness and about um, 
about learning from others and all of those sorts of things. And I think that hopefully for anybody listening, that this will be really useful. And that's it for this episode. Don't forget to like, rate and subscribe and join me next time where I'll be talking to somebody else about researchers, development and everything in between.